We are in the book of James. It's page 1011, if you're using your pew Bible this morning. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, not with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is the word of the Lord. I didn't realize this, but as I dove into the book of James, we find that the book of James, many people would say, is one of the most quoted books of all of the Bible. I... I just hadn't put all that together. There are so many small kinds of statements that are made in the book of James that we find ourselves saying at times and don't realize that many of them are concentrated in the book of James. One of those is the statement, faith without works is dead. You hear that a lot. You hear people talk about that. You hear that thrown in the face sometimes of Christians. And it might make you think that James is a book about works. Well, it talks about works, but it really is a book about faith. It's a book about genuine faith, what genuine faith looks like, what the fruit of genuine faith is. We've begun in that book a couple of weeks ago, and we kind of laid groundwork for a couple of weeks, and now today we're going to really dive into the meat of the book But let me remind you the last couple of weeks, on on the first Sunday that we opened the book of James, we ended with the idea that one of the reasons why James, which really summed up all of the other reasons really, was because we want to be people who have a sweet-smelling aroma to the world. Christians ought to desire that. You ought to desire that in your life, that your lived out life, your functional faith out in the world as you function in faith ought to be a sweet smelling aroma to the world. We want to be people, we said then, people who are people of distinctiveness. There's a distinctiveness about us, not a distinctiveness of separation. Certainly there are things that we we don't participate that happen in the world, but we don't want to be known for that. We want to be known for other distinctive qualities. I think first and foremost, we ought to be known for things that we talked about that particular Sunday, things like being a generous people in a stingy world, which comes from another, but a generous person in a stingy world or a selfless person in a selfish world. May God make it such that we are known about those kinds of positive kinds of things that flow out of the faith we say we have, that that are fruit of that faith. And then last week we made a point to spend some time talking about 
where the gospel is in James because the gospel or the, the book of James has many imperatives in it. There's disagreement exactly how many, but almost half of the verses could be called imperatives, things to do. So where do you find the gospel in that? Where is the gospel? And we spent time looking at a couple of places, <clears throat> a couple of places where it shows up. In chapter one, we looked at the gospel in verses 18 through 21. I'm not going to go back to that today completely, but in those particular verses, it made the point that justification is not the, the root or, or, or excuse me, that, um, that works are not the root of our justification but rather the fruit of our justification. That's an incredibly important thing to keep in mind when we talk about imperatives. Those imperatives that Paul talks about ought to flow out of our lives as believers are not the root of our justification. In other words, God doesn't look at those works and say there's enough there so that you then can be justified in my sight. But rather they're the fruit. They flow out of it. And so it isn't so much that the quantity of them that it's talking about, but the presence of them, the reality of them. Not quantity, but reality. There needs to be the reality of fruit flowing out of faith, a reality of it. And so God doesn't look down and look at the quantity of your works, say, okay, you have enough, you crossed the bar, you climbed high enough, but rather he looks to see, is there a reality Is there a reality? Is there fruit? Is there a reality of a faith in them? It's not then about works. It's about faith. A faith and inherent within that faith are works that flow out of it. And so that's how we need to look at the book of James. And as you looked at the very last chapter of the book of James, it says he gives more grace. He gives more grace. And that's how those fruits manifest themselves is God gives us grace and out of us flow works, the kinds of things that he talks about in the book of James. So that is the groundwork. That's the premise of it. And it talked about in chapter 1 about being brought forth by the word. It says, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. We are brought to life by the word. The word that then is implanted in our hearts. The word of God is implanted. It goes down and says, receive with meekness the implanted word, the word that brought you to life. The word that brought life to you from death. And what we're going to talk about now in the book of James is is the, the, the reality of hearing that word, really hearing it, hearing it in the sense that we receive it, that we welcome it into our lives. And I hope as we now look at the book of James, as we go into the heart of the book of James, that we will receive it and we will welcome it into our lives. Let's pray and then we're going to look. Father, I pray you'll help us this morning as we seek now to go into the body of the book of James. I pray that there will be a meekness within us, a meekness which is evidence of new life within us, a meekness about the word and we'll be willing to receive it. We'll be willing to welcome it into our lives this morning and every Sunday that we come together and every time we open this book. Lord, we just pray that, that you will cause fruit to flow out of the faith that you've implanted through the word in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, 
we begin with the verse 2, where it says, Count it all joy, my brothers. Paul is writing to Christians. And he's saying, count it all joy. What does he ask us to count joy? He says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. We live in a broken world. So what does it mean to count it all joy when you come head on into a broken world and it hits you? What does it mean to count it all joy? I don't think he's talking about being a masochist in the sense that we... We like getting beat up by the world. I don't think he's, he's sugarcoating it. I think he's just talking about the reality. We live in a world. In fact, it says in that, um, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And so the gamut is wide of the things that come against us. There are, there are things this morning that are poking you and pressing it upon you. And the Bible would say to us, the admonition, the imperative, it says, count it all joy when they come. That is, that is counterintuitive, isn't it? It is counterintuitive. It is countercultural. It's what the Bible talks about when it says it plays sorrowful yet always rejoicing. What does that mean? How can you be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing? That's what Paul talked about. That's the kinds of things that Jesus says to us at times and Paul says to us at times. Seem things that contradict reality or at least a certain reality, a worldly reality, a worldly mindset. It is not in us naturally to count it all joy when those things come at us. But James says do it. I think again he's saying to do it and and. And have joy in the midst of a reality of realizing we live in a broken world. We don't like it. It's broken. It doesn't work like it should. It's all right to say, I don't like it. It hurts. But there's a way, even when it hurts and we don't like it, and it's broken and it frustrates us, to count it all joy. What does he mean by that? What is he saying by that? What is... What does it mean to do it? What is a trial? It's a test. And what do we need to keep in mind? What do we need to know in the midst of those things coming at us? Two things, I think, are paramount for us to count it all joy. First is we have to believe that God is sovereign. To be a Christian, I think, is to believe that God is sovereign over all things. Over all things. And at the very least of those things that come at you. The very least, we must believe that God could stop it. God could stop it. God could prevent it. He could keep it from hitting you. How can you trust a God who would not be sovereign? How could you trust a God who who was not in control? How could you trust a God who was sleeping on the job and somehow let something squeak by him that got to you? I think the Bible clearly teaches that whatever comes to us comes through him, comes through him. And so I think to, to count it all joy, we have to believe that God is in control, that God is in charge, that God is overall, that God is all-powerful, that he's a God who doesn't slumber or sleep. Nothing catches him off guard. 
He doesn't get too busy over here that he can't deal with something over there. He is always awake. That's the, one of the differences between God and us, isn't it? You slept last night, or at least you tried to sleep. But God didn't, and he doesn't have to. And maybe if you didn't last night, maybe you spent the whole night awake, I guarantee you, one of these nights coming, you will sleep again. You, you have to. That's the definition of finiteness. But part of the definition of who God is, he neither slumbers nor sleeps. Why do we need to know that? Because he's always there. He's always sovereign. And we need to know that. The reason we can count it all joy is because we know that. Because we function out of that, believing that in our lives. I remember a number of years ago, and I've shared this story a number of times. It keeps me humble. It keeps reality. It keeps you from thinking higher of me than you ought to think. And, and, uh, it was, it was a number of years ago, a long time ago. In fact, I don't have the vehicle anymore. You know the story. Sunday morning at our house, in the pastor's house. And I don't even remember what was happening. I remember where I was, some of the things I was doing and where I was standing at one point in the whole thing and just, just feeling like I was going to explode with the pressures that were coming on that Sunday morning. And I remember walking out of the house and I remember putting my fist down on my vehicle enough to leave a dent in that vehicle. I never told anybody about that until later. And the vehicle's long gone. But I remembered it. I remembered it. I remember going back to that. I would see that dent in the vehicle. And what was I doing when I did that? Letting out my frustration. I was saying to God, and I had to repent of that, God, you're not taking very good care of me today. You are not taking very good care of me. That's what I was saying. It was sin. It was sin. And whenever that happens within us, whatever, however it manifests in our life, we all have the tendency to say, God, you're not taking very good care of me. And it really is a belief that God's not sovereign. He's not able to watch over things, that somehow something caught him by surprise or he didn't care. Second thing is, it's, it's saying to him, I don't believe you really love me. I don't believe you really care about me. Both of those things, the Bible clearly teaches that God loves us with an everlasting love. Those that are in Christ, he didn't, he didn't withhold the best. His son, will he not with him also graciously give us all things? The book of Romans tells us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not with him and along with him graciously give us all things? One of the key fundamental promises of the gospel is that God is no longer against you and he is for you. You have a seat at the table. That's what somewhat what this symbolizes to us this morning. When you take this cup and you take this bread, you have a seat at the table of his table. If you're in Christ, he is not against us. So stop for a moment this morning. And whatever is pressing in upon you, whatever trial, and all of us have them, whatever of those various trials, wherever you land on that spectrum, are you living functionally in the reality that God is sovereign, neither slumbers nor sleep, nothing caught him unaware, and that he loves you with an everlasting love? All that comes to his children is good and good for them.
No longer is there wrath being stored up to be poured out upon them. It's gone. That wrath was poured out on Christ. And now He's able to love us. He's able to love us perfectly and completely and work all things to the good of them that love God and are called according to His purpose. So count it all joy because you know those things are true. Not because it feels joyful, not because it doesn't sting, not because it doesn't hurt, but because it is working a greater purpose in your life. And here it tells us what that purpose is. It says, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's producing steadfastness in your life. It is, it is keeping you believing. We sang that song. He will hold me fast. It's a part of his process to keep us holding fast. Steadfastness. He's producing it in your life. Whatever there is out there coming against his children in way of trials, it's producing steadfastness. We can count it all joy because there is a result and a goal. And the goal of steadfastness, it says in the scripture, that you may be perfect, complete, Lacking in nothing. Don't chop that up. Don't minimize what he says. Perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. You'll come to full maturity in Christ through this process. That's what he promises. That's what trials do. That's why you count them of joy because they're not just random acts that have no one looking over them and watching over it. They come to you through the hand of a loving, sovereign God who is working out his purpose to produce steadfastness in us. Not just a kind of grin and bear it kind of steadfastness, not that, but, a, but a joyful, a joyful steadfastness. That's what the world needs to see. If we're going to be the aroma of Christ to the world, they're going to see that, that Christianity distinctly does do something in its followers. It's, it's seen in these kinds of things because they know what happens when those trials come to them. They know how it affects them and how they respond to them. And they begin to see somebody who counts it as joy, not in a fake kind of painted on way, but in a reality that it stings, in a reality that Paul talked about, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, not liking it but seeing a grander purpose and plan in it. They see us not roll over, but keep on going joyfully. Then the text goes on to say something else. It talks about counting it all joy, and you can hear more of this. In fact, Mother's Day, actually before I began in the book of James, we talked in this text, and you can go back there. We said other things about it, but let's move on this morning as we come to the table. I want to look at verse 5 where it says, if any of you lacks wisdom. Now, one of the things about James, it seems like he, he just kind of pulls the handle and changes gears. One of the things as you read through the book of James, it seems like he says this, and then he says that, and then he says this. I think one of the things to try to do is to see it in the context. And here's an example. He's talking about count it all joy when trials come, if anyone lacks wisdom. Now, we can use that text in other places where we need wisdom, but the context is in the context of trials. Okay, you're here this morning, and you know when I said what's pressing in upon you, you know it. It's weighting you down. 
And he says, count it joy. And then you can ask God for wisdom of how to live in it, how to function in the midst of that trial, though it doesn't necessarily get removed. How do I function as it stays there? As it continues to poke and prick at me, give me wisdom. And the Bible says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generally to all without reproach, and it will be given him. That's a wonderful promise. A promise for a person who is in the midst of facing trials and testing. We can ask for wisdom. And wisdom is basically in this context of how to live life. How do I live life with this thing there if it doesn't get removed? How do I function in the midst of it? It can be all kinds of things, can it? It can be external circumstances. It can be physical. It can be emotional. It can be all kinds of things. But the Bible says, if you lack wisdom of how to live, in that, ask. And the Bible says that if we ask, if we acknowledge our need, that God will give us graciously help. It, it, it's interesting, the word, it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. He's no respecter of person. He gives generously. It's the promise there. Ask, and it will be given by a God who is generous. Do you see God as generous? Do you see him as a gracious God? We talked about a God who loves us. God is working for our good. That's who the God it's talking about here, because it's talking about brothers. I, I can't promise that for an unbeliever. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, If you're an unbeliever, I can't promise you graciousness and generosity. Well, the Bible says God is not willing that any should perish in those kind of texts. But there's going to come a day when that is an eternal promise. I I can't say for unbelievers this morning that God only works good for you. But if you're a believer, if you're in Christ... I can say it. And here he's speaking to Christians who gives generously to all without reproach, to all of his children without reproach, it will be given. But there is a condition, and that is that we ask in faith. He goes on to say here in this, but let him ask in faith and with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded man, stable in all his ways. What does it mean to, to, to doubt? I don't think it's talking here about honest doubt. I don't think any of us can say that there's never been a time when a doubt hasn't gone through our minds. I think what he's talking about here is when we ask... When we ask a generous God that we are willing to hear what he has to say. We're willing to receive with meekness the implanted word, if you will. We're willing to respond and obey to what we've asked when the answer comes. Oh, I want an answer, God, but I want it to be what I want. I want you to fix it the way I've designed I want you to let me be sovereign, not you. If that's our spirit, you become an unstable 
in all of your ways. Become double-minded in all of your ways. And so it's a willingness to accept the answer. It's a willingness to accept the wisdom of God in that circumstance. To let him be your wisdom. It, it may be countercultural. Probably will be. Maybe counterintuitive. Certainly will fit that bill as well. But I'm willing, Lord. I'm willing. And one of the interesting things now, as you look at the book of James, I, again, though we're in the meat of it, we're still laying some introductory things. That's what the book of James is all over the place. We're going to look at counterintuitive, countercultural things all through the book of James. It is not the wisdom of the world that we're going to read about in the book of James. So he, again, writes these words, being double-minded, unstable in all our ways, in the context of other things that he's going to write. Are we willing to hear with meekness the implanted word? Do we want his wisdom? Or do we want our way? I think that's what the text is talking about. And it's the opposite of steadfastness. What he's describing there, double-minded, unstable in all your ways, is the opposite of steadfastness. If we go into it that way, it doesn't create the steadfastness that the Bible talks about. So God, help us. Help us in the trials and the tests. We're going to come to the table in just a moment. The question I would ask you this morning, as we come, and as you come to the table, Are you welcoming the trials in your life? Are you welcoming the trial in your life? Maybe as I said, what is it in your life? One thing distinctly rose to the top. Are you welcoming it? Count it all joy. That certainly has to do with welcoming it. Welcoming it. For as long as God desires for it to be there, I welcome it. I count it joy because of what it is producing Now, I said this earlier, but it's easy for us to to say that for somebody else, isn't it? We can look at somebody else's life, and we can see their circumstance, and we can say, count it all joy for them. At all the same time, denying what's in our life. Maybe not even acknowledging it as a trial. It's there, it hurts, but we we don't even acknowledge it. So... Stop for a minute and acknowledge it in your life. Maybe more than one thing in your life. Have you named it as a trial, as a test? Have you named it as that? That thing in your life that you just think, oh, if I just didn't have it, if it just were gone, my life would be different. If I didn't have to deal with this, it'd be smooth sailing. No more problems. Why? Isn't it gone? God, take it away. And and stop praying that prayer for a while. It's okay to ask him, honestly, to take it away. Paul asked three times for a thorn in the flesh to be taken from him, removed from him. There's a place to ask. But if all you're doing is asking for it to get removed, you're probably not welcoming it very long in your life. So to stop this morning and just welcome it, To welcome it in your life, whatever it is, welcome it. Begin there. You see, our response when those things come is a myriad of things. One is to just want to get rid of it. 
But when those things come, they, they stir up emotions. They stir up fear. When some trial comes, fear rises up. You let your mind run with fear. You can let your mind run with despair. I mean, you just despair. Think, oh, this thing, I'm never going to get over it. You lead you to despair. And it, it begins to make a progression down to the point of where you become angry with God. And you start to blame God. You start to say, oh, oh, how could you love me? How could you love me and let this happen? Or whatever, and you fill in the blanks. That's not welcoming it. That's the opposite of welcoming it. So what does welcoming mean? It, it doesn't mean that. Is it creating fear? Is it creating despair? Is it creating anger at God? Causing you to draw away from him? Welcome it. Is it causing personal pity parties where we start to have a pity party about it or or we go to the other extreme, we just kind of get stoic in our own self-sufficiency and just gut ourselves through it? None of that is right. What should we do? We should welcome it. And then I think we go to verse 6 of chapter 4 of the book of James where it says this, He gives more grace. And say, God, I need more grace. I need your grace. I need your help. I need your help, Father, to endure it, if that's your will. To to live in it and to let it produce joy in my life. So again, I say to you, what is it? What is it that you think is snuffing out your joy. You think this thing, I could be joyful, I could be joyful if it weren't for this. God says you can be joyful even if it stays. Because he said, count it all joy. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us, Lord. Help us to name it. Help us to acknowledge it. Help us, Father, by your grace to welcome it. And then, Lord, to to see the miracle of your grace coming to us. And even in the midst of sorrow, because of a broken world, producing joy in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would work in us to will and to do according to your good pleasure, Father, which is that we would count it all joy when various trials come against us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to come to the table this morning and... uh, I pray that the spirit of your heart this morning is with meekness to receive the implanted word into your heart. With meekness, come to his table, ask for grace. With meekness, humble yourself and ask forgiveness if there's places you need to do that. Let's receive the bread together. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus said this, is my body. Take and eat remembrance of me.
This is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat and be grateful. Again, Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Take again in remembrance of me. daylight flees now the ground beneath quakes as its maker bows his head curtains torn in two dead are raised to life finish the victory cry the power of the cross 
became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath, we stand forgiven at the cross. Oh, to see my name Written in the wounds, for through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death, life is mine to live, one through your selfless love. This the power. Son of God, slain for us. What a love, what a cost, we stand forgiven at the cross. I have a close friend and colleague in ministry who is probably one of the most joyful people I know. But I'm a good enough friend to him to know that he's had incredible pain in his life. And often when I would call him on the phone or we would meet in person, and we would visit, I would ask, how are you doing? And more often than not, his reply would be, even when I knew that the pain was intense, God's grace is sufficient. That's all we would say about the circumstance. And I don't think it was a cliche. You you can't keep up a facade that long. It was true joy, but not joy because everything was easy sailing, but because he had known he gives more grace. And when the world begins to see people who operate in a way they don't operate, tick in a way they don't tick, it does something. God help us to be a people who live by the grace of God as we count it all joy when various trials come against us. Take and drink. This is the promise of the new covenant. Let's stand and pray together. Father, I pray this morning that you have done a work in hearts and in lives that maybe for some, for the first time, they named it 
as a trial. And that, Lord, you will help them to walk the journey of counting it all joy by the grace of God. That you will produce steadfastness in their life that when it has its full effect, will cause them to be lacking in nothing. Help us to be that kind of people pursuing those kinds of ends, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go in God's peace.